On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we continue in our look at the book of Haggai. And if you're wondering why Haggai, if you haven't been following this series, this is because this little book, two chapters in the Old Testament, speaks to the issue that seemed to be remarkably relevant to us today. Just like God's people in Jerusalem who came back from the exile and they were struggling to repent and regroup and recenter, so we too find ourselves in need of repentance and renewal today. I'm speaking about the larger evangelical church in America, which certainly applies to us. We are part of that movement, part of that culture. And as we deal with a lot of these issues, I think that we, we find that a lot of them apply to us personally as well. So let's assume that so far we've heard the message of Haggai and we've repented, we've assessed our circumstances and honestly looked at our lives and we've repented of our sin, we've regrouped, we've moved forward, we've figured out which direction we need to be going and we've dealt with discouragement and we're moving forward. The next question is then, what can thwart our progress? What can hinder us as we go forward? It's the same thing that is responsible for the current sorry state of our movement. Would you like to know what it is? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's sin. It's always sin. Sin that has damaged our movement is the same threat that we need to be worried about moving forward. Our text this morning, as we will see, will show us that underestimating the power of sin 
And being overly confident in our own goodness leads to fruitlessness. The hope for the lasting success of the evangelical church lies in our ongoing commitment to holiness. Evangelicals today are not known for their ardent hatred of sin and their unrelenting pursuit of practical righteousness. When asked to describe an evangelical, few of our unbelieving neighbors would list the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Instead, I think our unbelieving neighbors are more likely in their description of an evangelical, they are more likely to recite the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I've looked through that list, and I thought, maybe sorcery is sort of outside of the critique. But everything else on that list, you, you, you can match it with news articles involving evangelical leaders. John Piper, who can speak about the evangelical movement with some authority, being part of it for many years, said in a recent conference message, it seems to me that in the last 40 years or so of the gospel-centered emphasis in America, there has not been a biblically proportionate emphasis on preaching holiness of life and godliness and righteousness and radical countercultural Christ likeness. He went on to say that many evangelical preachers and consequently many evangelical Christians have not made the effective connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian, between canceled sin and conquered sin, between the horrors of Christ's suffering and the holiness of Christ's people between justification by Christ's blood and progressive sanctification by that same blood, between the tearing of Christ's flesh in crucifixion and the tearing out of your eye in the battle against lust. I believe we're going to see this connection in our text. I believe we're going to hear God's clear call to His people in 520 B.C. in Jerusalem as they were rebuilding the temple, and to us here in St. Louis in 2022, and that call is to take sin seriously and to commit to the grace-fueled pursuit of practical holiness. And before I speak to these things, let me pray. Father, I come to this topic as a leader and as a Christian. And so I ask you that you would speak to me and to us 
that you would speak through me, that this message that feels so heavy to me, that feels so important to our church, that feels critical to our movement, I pray that this message will land, that it would stick, that it would be planted into our hearts. And I pray for myself that I will speak without hypocrisy, without manipulation, without looking down, without judgmental, arrogant attitude, and yet with biblical conviction, with gracious humility, with clarity, and with the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask all of this only because Jesus died and rose for us. It's by his blood that we come to you and ask you to change us. So let's look at our text. Very simple outline, just two divisions, just two big portions. One is the corruption of sin, and the second one is the power of grace to make us holy. The corruption of sin and the power of grace to make us holy. Now Haggai orients us in the timeline. This has been now three months since construction of the temple has resumed. People heard the message. They started rebuilding for three months. They're building. It's about the time when they're starting to plant seeds for the next harvest. So they're trying to think through the implications of their obedience. And the question is, I think, in the back of this text, the question is whether their new obedience, this new response to God's Word, will result in a fruitful harvest. That's the question. Will our obedience result in God's blessing of our lives? Remember that the Lord had been withholding the blessings of the land to show them that life without Him is futile and frustrating. Now look at verses 15, 16, and 17 in our passage. Now then, the Lord says, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Meaning, how did you fare in all these years of neglecting the temple? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine that to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Now it's time for sowing. They're working on the temple in obedience to God's word. Does that mean that God will now bless them? That's the question. And God gives them this analogy to explain how this works. And this is the analogy. He says, go ask a priest how ritual cleanness or uncleanness works. Because ultimately, the question they're asking has to do with sin and holiness and repentance and God's grace. So he says, go talk to your priests and ask them, how does this work? Now, priests were tasked with offering sacrifices in the temple, and they followed very specific rules according to the law of Moses as to what was clean 
and what was unclean ritually. How would one get unclean and then get clean so they can come and serve in the temple? Lots of rules. And so there's two questions that the Lord, Lord tells His people to ask their priests. First question, verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? In other words, if you touch something holy, like sacrificial meat, and then you touch something else, will it also become holy? Will the holiness of the holy meat of the sacrifice transfer through you onto something else? Your clothes touch the holy thing. Now, if you touch something else with your clothes, will it also become holy? And the answer is no. Holiness is not transferred through indirect contact. This is very clear. They're asking the question, does our obedience now in this particular matter mean that the Lord will bless us? Lord gives them this analogy. One question is, does holiness transfer to the third degree? Will indirect contact with holiness produce holiness? And the answer is no. Now here's the second question. They go together. Verse 13. If someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? In other words, if you touch something ritually unclean like a corpse, and then you touch something else, will it also become unclean? And the answer here is yes, because defilement spreads. Now, this is what the Lord is telling them, that holiness does not spread through indirect contact. If you touch something holy, it affects you, but it doesn't affect anybody else you touch. And it doesn't affect other parts of your life that are not directly affected by that holy thing. But if you touch something unclean, you become unclean, and anything you touch becomes unclean. Defilement spreads. Now think about it this way. A healthy person cannot make anyone else healthy. Let's say you're sick, you go, you find the cure, you get better. That's your direct contact with holiness. But you now can't go and touch somebody, and because you have been made well, now they will also be made well. But a sick person can infect others who can in turn infect others. Now here's the point of the analogy, verse 14. So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean unclean. The question was, does our obedience in this matter, building the temple, will it produce the blessings of the harvest? Because they're saying, we, are, we have figured it out. We have addressed our issues. We're offering to the Lord now what He wants, and the Lord says, that's not what I want. He says, what you're offering to me in this new temple is unclean. Even though they are building the temple and they're offering sacrifices, they have been made unclean by their sin in other areas of life. One commentator put it this way. 
the new temple could not transform the community into a holy people. But their moral defilement could infect the whole land. Just because they're building the temple and they're being obedient in this way doesn't mean that all of their other sins are automatically covered by that. They're not overlooked. The Lord says your uncleanness is spreading, but your obedience is only partial. Yes, it is right for you to rebuild the temple. You've responded to my word, but you have not responded with your whole life. You've only chosen this area to be obedient in, and you think that that one obedience now makes your whole life acceptable to me. And the Lord says, no. Now, let's make it relevant to us. Whatever you do right before the Lord does not negate the sin you have been harboring. Whatever you do right before the Lord does not negate your other sins. So, for example, if you go to church this morning, which is the right thing to do, you're obeying the Lord by being here. But then you go home and you yell at your children and belittle your spouse, your obedience in corporate worship does not cover your disobedience at home. Just because you touch something holy here this Sunday morning, it does not make what you touch at home clean. Partial obedience is not credited to you as full obedience. Acting like a Christian on Sunday does not make it okay acting like a heathen on Monday. Now, here's another relevant principle. I'm trying to connect it to our lives. Defilement spreads. I heard one pastor reflecting on what led to his moral failure and loss of his ministry. He said he was regularly watching pornography on his phone, but never on his iPad. Because the iPad was for preparing sermons. So he kept it holy. He thought he could keep his sin and his holiness separate. But sin has spread and eventually consumed his ministry and destroyed whatever good influence he had. Now, you may think that you can keep a particular sin secret and under control. You can keep it from spreading, just kind of isolate it in one part of your life, but you can't do that because defilement and corruption spread. Jen Wilkin used this illustration in one of her Bible studies. She referred to this news story that I, I looked up, and it's a crazy story. Antoine Yates bought a tiger cub and raised it in his Harlem apartment. It's a crazy story. I mean... He had roommates, his mom was babysitting other kids with a tiger in one room and an alligator in another. It's bizarre. How did the authorities find out that there was a Bengal tiger living in an apartment? They found out when Antoine was taken to the ER with bite marks belonging to a very large animal. What happened? 
the 425-pound predator eventually couldn't be controlled. And so he did what he does. This is an excellent picture of the power of sin to corrupt. It spreads. You see, you start with a cub. You start with a cuddly tiger cub. And then it grows, and it becomes what it's supposed to be, and it does what it's supposed to do, and it destroys your life. Amen. Have you failed to take sin seriously? Have you been rationalizing your resentment or your bitterness or your anger or your sloth or your gluttony? Have you been hiding your lust or your greed? Have you tolerated your sin? Just because some other parts of your life are holy, have you said it's okay? We're just going to keep this sin here, but everything else is okay. Or this other part is, is so great. I am so in tune with what the Lord wants here. He doesn't need to look over here. And I can keep that contained and under control. That cub will never grow up to be a tiger. One global Christian leader who had been living a secret life of sexual sin and abuse was reported to have forced women into sexual contact by saying that he deserved it because of all the good things that he was doing for the Lord and all the sacrifices that he made for others, that this was a reward for him. How does this kind of thinking develop? It develops when we can fracture our lives and say this is holy and this is sin sinful, but they, they don't need to touch. And so if I'm doing well here, that covers whatever I'm not doing over here. And so I can live a life of partial obedience, but credited to myself as full obedience. I can think that if I do something holy, that holiness now spreads and covers the rest of my life. But the Lord says, no. The Lord says, defilement spreads. And holiness only happens through direct contact with the holy. Brothers and sisters, I am pleading with you as I am pleading with myself. I am not excluding myself from this audience of this message. I am pleading with you to take sin seriously. Listen to the Holy Spirit today as we talk about it, as we sing and we pray, as you come to the table. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to what He's saying to you. Listen to His conviction and respond in godly sorrow and repentance. Don't leave today or don't turn off your computer or your phone without repentance, without saying, the Lord has shown me my uncleanness. The Lord has shown, He's exposed my defilement. I thought I could keep it here and I could keep it under control and I can keep it secret, but the Lord knows and he's bringing it out into the light, whatever it is for you. And believe me, I know enough of my own heart, and I know enough of your lives that there is plenty here to repent from. So don't leave 
thinking that I'm okay because I'm at church. This is a holy thing. I have touched holy things today. I have done what the Lord has commanded. The rest of my life does not matter. It matters. The Lord says defilement spreads, but holiness is only acquired by direct contact. And this is what we need to talk about. How can we break out of the inconsistency and hypocrisy of life? I have a hard time when I stop and think about my life and I listen to the Holy Spirit, I do what I just told you to do. When I do that, I have a hard time finding hope because I know that if I look carefully enough, I will find layers and layers of sin. And I will find inconsistencies and hypocrisy and my own rationalizations and my own excuses. So how do I get out of it? How do you get out of this? How can you become a person? How can we become a people that are at war with sin, with great resolve, with great determination, with a consistent pattern of life that says we will not tolerate sin in our lives and we will fight it? We will fight it, and we will kill it. How do I become that person? How can we become a people that full-heartedly pursue a life of holiness? That say, the Lord commanded for me to be holy as He is holy, and I will be holy. I will submit my life to the pursuit of holiness. How can I be that kind of person? How can you be that kind of person? How can we truly repent and truly change Not just on a Sunday morning, I feel bad, and then Monday I kind of start feeling better about my sin. But a real change, a real shift, a real growth. How can we do that? Well, let me point out two things from this text that help us, and then I'll connect it to the larger dynamics of the Christian life. First, notice the purpose of God's withholding of the full blessings of the harvest from His people. God did that, he disciplined them, and then he explained why he did that. Verse 17, the Lord says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You did not turn to me. Why did the Lord mess with their crops? So that they would turn to him. The point of his discipline is to turn them away from sin But notice, not towards better living, not towards righteousness. Righteousness comes as a result of this, but towards himself. He says, I'm doing all this in your life so that you would turn to me, so you would come back to me. That's his goal. And so if the Lord is disciplining you, and you look at your life and you feel like this is fruitless and, and frustrating and futile and I look for 20 measures and there's only 10. I look for 50, but there's only 20 there. Ask yourself, have you turned to Him? Because that's why He's doing it. Have you turned to Him? Not said, I'm going to sow better and plow better and get a better harvest next year. But have you turned to Him? Now, that's the purpose of His discipline. And secondly, notice the promise of the Lord. Verse 19, he says, Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. That's previous harvest. The new harvest is not there yet. And then he says, But from this day on, I will bless you. 
from this day on, there's a specific date, I will bless you. God promises to bless his sinful people. So the Lord says, I'm disciplining you because I want you to turn to me. Everything I'm doing in your life because I want you and you need me, you need to come to me. And I am also promising to bless you. He says, I'm blessing you from this day on. Remember this date. From now on, I will bless you. So how can we deal with our sin and how can we pursue holiness? This is the biblical answer. This is the answer from Haggai. By turning to God who has promised to bless us. By turning to God who has promised to bless us. Now let's make sure we understand that. We can become holy by direct contact with the Lord. And he offers himself to us by grace. So the solution to our problem is the Lord himself. And the Lord himself says, I am here for you. I'm coming to you. I will bless you. He says, turn to me. See what I'm doing in your life and turn to me. Come to me. This is why I'm working in your life. So we know what the solution is, and the solution is offered to us by grace. God commands, be holy, for I am holy. We read that Peter passage. It's in Leviticus. It's in a couple other places. He says, be holy, for I am holy. He himself is the standard of our holiness. We get that, right? We get that. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be like God. It means to match his purity, match, match his righteousness, to be on his level, to reach that standard. Okay, be like me, God says. But there's something else going on here. He is not only saying be holy as, at the same level as I am holy. He's also saying be holy because I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. As I am holy, so you can be holy. There's a transfer of holiness here. The Lord says, turn to me, come in contact with me, and be like me. You remember that in Haggai's illustration, holy meat carried in the fold of the priest's garment made the garment holy. Holiness is transmitted directly. And God says, turn to me and you will be holy because I am holy and I am offering myself to you by grace. Here's a command, but also there's a provision. I am commanding you to be holy and the way you can be holy is by coming to me because I am holy and my holiness will be transmitted to you. Look at Luke 5, verses 12 and 13, and there are many passages like that in the Gospels, but there's one. Luke 5, 12 and 13. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, this is a man with the same problem, unclean, defilement spreads, nothing he touches heals him. So he goes to Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now what happened there? Jesus touched someone unclean. But instead of being defiled, 
Instead of being made unclean himself, instead of being corrupted by sin himself, Jesus made the leper clean. When Jesus touches someone who is unclean, instead of the uncleanness spreading to him, his holiness spreads on whomever he touches. This is the principle. Our problem is we can't contain our defilement. I can do well in one area of my life. Yes, I can pull myself together for a particular day and a particular task. I can do that. But I cannot contain the defilement. I cannot contain the corruption. And so when I'm honest with myself and I acknowledge that this is a problem, that I am struggling in my pursuit of holiness, I'm struggling in my battle with sin, the Lord's answer is, turn to me, and because I am holy, when you touch me, you will be made holy. When you come to me, when there's a direct contact between you and me, instead of your defilement consuming me, my holiness will consume you. Why? Because there was a time when my defilement consumed him on the cross. But after that, whomever he touches is made holy. A.W. Pink said, the great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. The great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. The power to overcome sin and to become holy is not found in ourselves, but in Christ who graciously offers His holiness to us. So don't go fighting your sin on your own. Don't do that. Don't hear the first half of this message and say, I was told that I'm a sinner, that I need to pull it together, that I need to get it together, that I need to figure it out. Don't do that, because you can't do that. Defilement will just keep spreading. You keep thinking you'll contain it, but you can't. And so you turn to Him. You go to Him. You go to Christ and you touch Him. And He touches you. And His holiness now spreads. When a person comes to Jesus and experiences conversion, Christ's righteousness or holiness or His goodness is imputed to that person. And I'm using specific, precise theological language. It's imputed to Him. Meaning that their position before God is now changed because all of Christ's goodness has been attributed to them, credited to them, and they are now accepted by God on the basis of Christ's accomplishments and not their own sins. Because Jesus was punished in their place, now they can go to God in Jesus' place and be accepted as Jesus is accepted with the Father. That's imputed righteousness. That is at the heart of the gospel, that substitution, that we go to Christ by faith, and when we touch Him by faith, he's, all His goodness is credited to us immediately. And we've been justified, been vindicated. We've been made clean before God. Ritually unclean before, but now ritually clean and acceptable to God because of the blood of Jesus spilled for us. That's true. That is incredibly important, and we preach it every Sunday. But you can't stop there. You see, so many of us 
stop there and we say we're forgiven. Praise God, I'm forgiven. And you stop there. And you assume that God has already done everything He wanted with you. Our guilt has been removed. We're accepted with God because of what Jesus has done. His grace has worked. But that's not all that God wants to do with you. He wants to make you holy. Like Jesus. Not only positionally, but also practically. God does not justify anyone without intending to sanctify them completely. God never saves somebody and justifies them and say, I'm done with them. He is always intending to change you completely and to make you practically holy, practically like Him. Not just positionally, not just legally, but also practically in your life. On a Tuesday morning, He wants you to be practically holy. God wants you to be holy as He is holy. Not only He acquits you of your crimes, He also reforms your whole life. I think John Piper is right that too many evangelicals have not made that connection. That the grace of God in Jesus is intended not just to justify you, but also to sanctify you. That the grace of God in Jesus is intended by God to change you completely, not just in part. It's not just for forgiveness of sins, it's also for the destruction of sin. Listen to one writer, he says, that's what the grace of God is for, not simply to balance a ledger, but to stimulate the spurts of growth and zeal and enthusiasm for shalom in good hard work and sheer delicious gratitude for the gift of life and all its pain and all its wonder. He's saying it's not just balancing the ledger and, and making you debt-free before God, acquitted of your crimes. It's also motivating you and empowering you to live a completely different life. This is what God wants. And we, many of us, have taken part of the gospel and we've said, I am forgiven, I'm acquitted. Not guilty before God. That's, that's wonderful. It's a great gift. But why is, the, why is God doing that? He has a purpose in that. And the purpose in that is to make you completely practical acceptable to Him. Practically acceptable, not just positionally acceptable. It's critical to believe in imputed righteousness of Christ. Our peace with God depends on that. But it is also critical to believe in imparted righteousness of Christ. Imparted Christ, Christ's righteousness. I'm talking about practical holiness of Jesus being produced in your life by the Holy Spirit. Now, another term for this process is sanctification. Being made holy, sanctified like Him. Matching, practically matching His righteousness. By walking closely with Jesus, we progressively become more like Him. That is how it works, and that is what He wants. The blood that has cleansed you from your guilt and shame is the same blood that is cleansing you from the defilement of sin. Jesus did not purchase your life with His blood to leave you as you are. He didn't do that. 
In the passage we read from Peter, he's saying that you were ransomed from the futile ways. You are ransomed from the practical unrighteousness of your life by the same blood, the same blood that clears you before God and makes you acceptable before God positionally. The same blood is supposed to cleanse your life and it's supposed to make you practically holy, that you don't return to the futile ways of your previous life without Him. He wants you to be holy, and He's offering His holiness to you by grace. He says, turn to me, and I will bless you. Be with me, and I will make you holy. The greatest danger for the evangelical movement and the greatest problem for any individual Christian is sin. We must take it seriously. Let us not rationalize it. Let us not hide it. Let us not balance it out with partial obedience. Let us not justify it. Let us not ignore it. We've got to keep killing it. That's the only way for a Christian to live is to kill sin, to war against it, to hunt for it, and to kill it. Having been freed from sin's penalty... We must pursue freedom from sin's power. We must fight greed and lust and bitterness and resentment and anger and sloth, but not in our power, in His. Jesus came to deliver us from sin, from sin in all its aspects, in all its power, in all its presence, in all its penalty. That is why He came. The more contact with Jesus you have, the more His grace causes you to grow in holiness. Turn to Him, and He promises to bless you. He promises that your fight with sin will be successful and fruitful, and that your holiness will increase. Now we're going to come to the table. And this is an example. This is, a, this is a picture of going to Him for holiness. This is a picture of going to Him and touching Him because He's holy and trusting Him that His holiness will spread on you and not your defilement on Him. Somebody asked me recently, and this is a common question, if I am struggling in my faith, can I come to the table? It's a common question. Let me answer that. If you're struggling in your faith, you have to come to the table. You need to run to the table. You need to run to Jesus because that's your only hope. How are you going to stop struggling? By staying away from Him? You can't do that. Not in your own power. So you repent, you confess your sin, and you run to the table. And you take it with both hands. And you say, Jesus, help me. And you look to Him and you say, if you will, Lord, if you will make me clean, And he says, I will be clean. So when you come to the table, the only requirement for coming to the table is your connection to him, is your desire to go to him. If you are a Christian, if you're his follower, if you've connected with him by faith, that is all that is required here. And you come to the table and you take more of him. And you ask him and you plead with him to nourish your faith, to build you up, to infuse his holiness into your life, to produce real repentance, to produce real godly sorrow that leads to life, 
to make you make real change in your life, lasting change, for whatever sin you're dealing with to be conquered. That's how you come to the table. Now, if you're going to come to the table and say, I'm doing this, the Lord wants me to do that, I don't need to worry about the rest of my life, if I just do this, the Lord will be happy with me because this holiness will spread unto the rest of my life and I don't have to deal with sin, don't come. Then don't come. That's dishonest. It's taken advantage of him, and it doesn't work. That's not how it works. So go to him directly by faith. If you're not a Christian, go to him and become one. Go to him and embrace him as the conduit of God's grace that is flowing into your life. And you say, cleanse me, help me, and he will.